Good morning. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 8, or your smartphones, or if you just want to watch it on the screen, you can do that as well. We're stepping into a very famous story about Jesus and his encounter with a gal who has been brought before him for judgment. I love the series that we're doing on Jesus because it gives us glimpses into the way he was, how he thought about life, and as Christ followers, how we can embrace those same ideas. So starting in John chapter 8, verse 1, the text reads, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. It's interesting how when people are very much into judgment, they don't really care about how a person feels. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. See, Jesus' reputation had preceded him. He actually loved people, even people who had failed. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on pressing him, questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at this woman. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who began to go uh, away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Um, just sidebar, I spent most of the day, the last couple of days actually, in bed trying to beat a cold that I caught from my lovely grandchildren. Um, the little Petri dishes that they are. Uh, the good news is uh, I've got some pretty good cold medications in me that make me love people. So, you know, I feel pretty pastoral today. Enjoy it while it lasts. Um, the bad news is coherence isn't always accomplished when I'm under the influence of such medication. So good luck trying to get anything out of the message today. Okay, so th th this gospel uh, pericope, which is this vignette, uh, this story from the gospels today is a famous one about this prostitute that's brought before Jesus so that she could be stoned to death. Uh, interestingly, or sadly rather, justice sometimes was tragic in the Old Testament and the ancient Israelite world. And Jesus hears them out as they bring this woman before him, but he doesn't act in the way that they expected him to. 
That's what I love about Jesus. He just seems to act in ways you don't expect. He's what a philosopher would call an iconoclast. In other words, he's always breaking up old ways of thinking, old modalities of thought. And he sort of freaks people out in the way he responds. The first point of interest to me in this story is where is the man she was caught in adultery with? I mean, in verse 4, it says they asked him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Seems to me she was caught in the very act. Somebody else was there. (laughs) But notice that the guy she's caught with isn't here because in ancient religious thought, men often got a pass for sin and, uh, and for other things. Men were carried and thought of differently than women. You can find this in texts like Matthew 19 when the Pharisees come to Jesus to test him. And they ask him, isn't it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason, for every reason? I mean, mean, aren't men in that kind of honor that whatever they want to do, they get to do? I mean, after all, they are men. And Jesus' response is very interesting. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? He appeals to creation to show them that men weren't made necessarily better than women. They were made together. God made men. God made women. And he basically is sharing and inferring that there's a sense of equality that had been lost. Because of sin. He said, for this reason, a man would actually leave his fundamental relationships of a father and a mother and would be united to the wife. And the two wouldn't just be two, one subservient to the other, but they would actually be one. So no no longer would they be two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Here he raises the value of women in a culture where women were nothing but chattel, like animals. And then they reacted, whoa, 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 why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce, send her away for any and every reason? I mean, mean, the word of God (laughs) says we can do with those women what we want to do with the women, right? And Jesus replied, well, yeah, that's true. Sometimes the word of God gives room for knuckleheads. (laughs) Because Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Not because it's God's dream. Because from the beginning, it was not this way. See, understand something. Unguarded religion always oppresses the other, particularly women. It's interesting that in the fall of humankind, when sin worms its way into the human condition, this is when this disparity between men and women began. This is where the serpent, God speaks to the serpent in Genesis 3 and 15. I will put this strife, this enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her. And then in verse 16, it says to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, with pain, 
you will bring birth or give birth to children and your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This notion of the man ruling over the woman is not by design. It was the result of sin. The relationship between men and women had been influenced by the fall. And here Jesus begins to push back against that and say, it wasn't always like this. Men can't just arbitrarily treat their wives as though they were cattle. There's something very wonderful and very special and very sacred about the woman that you shouldn't just react to her as though she were a piece of property. But the culture that they were in was suffused with this male-female disparity. And scripture accepts it. So you have to understand something about scripture. It finds that the, the kingdom finds itself within a culture. And it doesn't always decry the culture because it is the culture in which it finds itself. It doesn't necessarily condone everything that's in the culture, but it accepts what's in the culture. Don't misunderstand acceptance of a culture with that's God's dream. And then on, it's like slavery. How many of you are glad that we've arrived at the point that we recognize it's not right for one person to own another person? Well, you go, well, yeah, of course. But did you know that the scriptures, the New Testament, accepts slavery? One of the reasons we had such a fight in the Civil War is because the South was claiming verses. Godly men saying, no, the word of God claims that we can have slaves. It supports slavery. And that there's actual verses used. The metaphor of slavery is used for the metaphor or as an exp explanation of discipleship. That we're slaves of Christ. You cannot find scripture that decries slavery. And so they fought to their deaths over that. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7 and 17, Paul writes, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life the Lord assigned to him. And in the context, he's talking about whether you're a slave or a freeman, that if you're born a slave, you, shouldn't, you should just accept it. And, 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 and it says, this is the rule I laid down for the churches. And then in verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let that trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. There's the first inference. That even though slavery is present, it's not necessarily God's dream. Verse 22, for he who called, who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is a free man when he was called is the Lord's slave. So he's just saying slavery as a metaphor for real discipleship. See, slavery, though, even though it's accepted in the New Testament, is not condoned in the New Testament. It's just allowed because of the contingencies of the culture. But there are hints of a trajectory beyond slavery. And so you get Paul in Galatians 3 when he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one. Drop the labels. 
There's no one better than anyone. We're all one in this thing. We should all be treated equally. That's the inference of the gospel. And so Paul appeals on a one-by-one basis to his friend Philemon, who had a slave by the name of Onesimus. And he appeals to Philemon. He says, Philemon, he's been a slave, but let's get rid of this gig. This slave gig, I know it's present, and you can keep doing it, but it's not God's best, even though it's present. And so he tells Philemon in verse 15 of the, of the little letter that's written by Paul to him, perhaps the reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, he was very dear to me and now even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So Paul is nudging, get past the contingencies of your day. Get past the acceptance of this slave master, uh, you know, sort of dialectic. Get past it. There's something better than that. Because family, listen, there is a progression encouraged in the scriptures. We are not as good as we can be. That's why the scripture says that we're to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is. In, in other words, the, the inference of that is that somehow life should be getting better, more beautiful, more fair, less, uh, you know, prejudice, less writing off of people that somehow as we cry out to God that we would look more and more like the dream that he had for the human race. See, I think this same kind of trajectory is true for women. I think there's still... Uh, vestiges of this notion that men are better than women. Not so much in the younger generations, but certain in the older ones, that there's this idea that there's some jobs. Did I just lose my voice? You're not turning me off because you don't agree with me, Steve. (laughs) Keep me loud because I want to be loud here. There there should be no jobs, no positions whatsoever that are withheld because a woman is a woman. This should be there should be no nothing in our culture nor anything in the church that should be held back from a woman. Because I mean I know that freaks some people out. But the reality is scripture does not lay out the idea that all women should be quiet. So I know a couple verses in the Bible talking about women being quiet. That just means because of the, look at the context and what was going on in the church. That does not mean that on a more fundamental issue that God is calling for something greater. Just like slavery is talked about repeatedly. I hope you're not standing on the ground we should reinstitute slavery. Because there's something more fundamental, human dignity, human freedom. The same is true for the sexes. Male domination was the result of the fall. And you can find examples of the Bible, you know, talking about that sort of thing. Even God is talked about in a very masculine way. Our Father who art in heaven. But if you know anything about theology, you know you could have just as easily said our mother. Because let me inform you, God is not a man. God is, does not have a body. He's not a man. In fact, one verse actually says that explicitly in the Old Testament. God is not a man that he should lie. <laughs> one of the 
words for God is El Shaddai. You know what that means? Shad is breast. It's the multi-breasted one. It's the notion that God is the God who's more than enough. Like a woman who is nursing a child has more milk than a, a child has suck. Right? That God is the multi-breasted one. And he's got more milk than you've got suck, baby. He has more than you need. See, God said that a woman who's nursing would more likely forget you on the side of the road, he tells Israel, than I could ever forget you. And those of you that have nursed know it's hard to forget a child when you're nursing the child because you feel like you're going to explode. But God said it's easier for you to forget a child than for me to forget you. There are all of these maternal images of God in the Bible. Say, so, well, God's a man, God's a man. See, there's guys... I get that you think that, but it's because of sin. Well, I just believe the word of God. No, you don't. You don't believe the word of God. Because I'm telling you what, you know who believes? This is a divisive issue, particularly for classic fundamentalists, Calvinists, and Neanderthals. And don't get confused by these groups because they do not believe the Bible. Well, I believe the word of God, the word of God, God, God. I mean, it just is what it is. You know, you don't believe the word of God because if I, if the Bible commands, I mean, actually commands to do a thing, you'd think you'd do it. What if it commands it twice? You'd think you'd do it. I mean, if you're a fundamentalist, if you just believe the word of God and you've got to follow the word of God. Well, what if it commands it three times? You think three times in the New Testament, a absolute direct command, you'd do it, especially if you're obeying the word of God. Right? What if it commands it four times? You think, well, yeah, I'll obey it. Well, let me just read a couple of these to you. Let me read four of them to you. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 16, 20. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. <laughs> 1 Peter 5.14, greet one another with a kiss of love. I don't think we should do it. Yeah, you know why? Because you're an idiot. Well, that's, that's, that's a social thing. Yeah, yeah. What you're saying is, there's a, there's a canon within the canon. There's certain verses you really agree with because they resonate with your prejudices and it's already inside you. Yeah. Well, this is the group that brought the woman before Jesus. And they throw him before Jesus. You're going to stone this woman. Word of God says we're to stone her. See? Same bunch. Jump down to verse 6 of chapter 8. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus bent down and he started writing in the ground. He's just writing in the ground. What was he doing? <laughs> I think what Jesus, I love this, because I think what Jesus was doing was he was saying, I'm not going to bow to the pressure of the crowd. The pressure was to get him to go along with what their expectations were. The charge's in the air. They throw her before him, and they're waiting for him to react. But I think what Jesus was doing is he was putting meekness on parade. Meekness is that virtue that 
is defined as patience under provocation from others. Is you have a patience when you're being provoked to do something. You don't react. Jesus wasn't interested in what others were pressuring him to do. What was he interested in doing? See, I think he was trying to get a bead on what God was saying. I think he was bowing because he's saying, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to you guys. I, I think what he's doing, he's trying to get a bead on what the Father is doing. What was he saying? Father, what do you want to do in this particular situation, this heated moment? And we capture a glimpse of this in Isaiah 11. That's a text that's you can look up in any uh, study Bible. It's called a, a messianic text because it's referring to Jesus. In fact, Jesus is actually called the branch. And we read here in, in Isaiah 11 and verse 1, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse and his roots from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Matthew calls Jesus the branch. It's a direct reference to this Isaiah passage. And he talks about how the Messiah would be. He would have the spirit of the Lord on him. And as a result, the spirit of the Lord resting on him would cause him to act in ways different than what the contingencies and the pressures around him would try to push him to act. And so the spirit of the Lord was on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And then this very interesting phrase in verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. We'll come back to that in a moment because it's a very odd translation. It was Difficult to translate from the Hebrew. You'll see why in a second. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. Watch. As a result, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, nor will he make a decision by what he hears with his ears. So here's Messiah walking in the world, not living by what everybody was doing, but constantly trying to orient himself to the spirit of the Lord who was upon him. So that when he came into a situation, he wouldn't judge by what he saw or make a decision by what he heard, but instead he delighted in the fear of the Lord. Now that little phrase, delight in the fear of the Lord, the Hebrew actually says, and you can understand why this is difficult to translate, the Hebrew actually says that he would smell God. <laughs> That's why he didn't make a judgment with what he saw or make a decision with what he heard. It's because he could smell God like a bloodhound can pick up on a scent and chase what we cannot smell. That somehow, I think what was happening is Jesus, when the pressure comes on and everybody's making these demands, Jesus goes on the ground and he starts drawing. What I think he was doing was going, <laughs> I think he was trying to sniff out God. What are you saying here? What's your response here? Spirit of wisdom, spirit of counsel, spirit of knowledge, spirit of power. How do I respond to the circumstances? <clears throat> I think what he's describing here is another way of calling what we would call the fear of the Lord. The fear of men is always being aware of what people think. The fear of God is asking, what is God thinking? It says in Proverbs 9 and 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowing what to do. And I think what Jesus was doing was he was sniffing out God. This is the heart of what we call meekness. It's not reacting to everything around us. It's, it's having a patience around what's going on and, and a reflection to what 
else is happening here? What is God saying here? It's us not reacting to the world around us. It's us fearing God. It's us pausing and listening when we're being pressured to act. This is Jesus' words when he said, if somebody slaps you on the face, instead of acting out of the sting, instead of responding out of the hurt, which is so easy to do, he said, turn the other cheek. Respond out of the wholeness. Respond out of the place that doesn't sting. Respond out of another dimension. Respond out of faith. And somehow when we respond from another dimension, we turn the other cheek, we actually are demonstrating meekness. And it was Jesus that said in Matthew 5 and 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This is how we conquer. It's not that we're in charge because we're so smart or we just rally all our votes and vote out all the people that don't agree with us. The way that we rule in the world is because we learn to respond in everyday situations the way God would have us respond. On the job, in our relationships, as we're raising our children. That we're not just reactive, but we take pause. Story with my son, Michael. This is one of my good stories. I have many horrible ones, but a failure. But one of my good stories was, I remember we were sitting at the table and we were going to pray over the food and I had some friends and so I wanted to put my kids on display. Michael was only about five and I said, hey, Michael, why don't you pray? Knowing that he could yarn out a pretty good prayer. And so he just put his head down. I said, Michael, I said, Papa, Daddy asked you to go ahead and pray. Would you please pray over the food? He put his head down. He kept his head down. Well, I'm getting a little upset because I'm thinking they're all going to think he's demon possessed. (laughs) My reputation is on the line. Michael, I said. And then I caught myself. And I prayed. And afterwards, I prayed about it. I said, Lord, what is going on with Michael? And in that moment of just reflection, that moment of just writing on the ground, just taking a moment, I heard in my heart, he doesn't know how to pray. Well, my initial reaction was, God, you don't know what you're talking about. He knows how to pray. (laughs) But see, when kids grow, sometimes they have to recontextualize and they don't, what worked before doesn't work. And what seems like a pattern isn't really a pattern, it changes. And so I I was getting him ready for a bath that night and I said, Mikey, I said, when, when Daddy asked you to pray today at lunch, you know, what happened? He put his head down in shame. And I said, honey, was it that you didn't know how to pray? Or? And he looked up and he said, I said, would you like Daddy to show you how to pray so you feel confident? And, and, and in that moment, I thought to myself, I could have so easily just badgered him into shame. But see, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I wonder how many places on the job, in our relationships, in our friendships, that we miss God because we're always reacting. Always yielding to the pressure instead of learning how to pause right in the ground and hear from God. This is faith. It's Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 5 and 7, we live by faith and not by sight. I think Jesus was functioning in trust to his father here and we must do as well. Then jump down to verse 7, chapter 8. When they kept on questioning Jesus, he straightened up. He said to them, okay, you guys that are without sin, cast 
cast the first stone at her. You guys throw the first stone at her. Then he stooped back down. He started writing on the ground again. Again, that aspect of patience. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Let me tell you something, young people. You may be really good looking and have lots of energy, but you're not as smart as you think you are. (laughs) Older people, we may not look as good, but dang, we got you beat on the intelligence scale because you're morons. (laughs) And the oldest ones left first. They got it. The younger ones going, what's going on? What's going on? They finally got it. Those poor, unfortunate souls. And finally, only Jesus is left with the woman still standing there. You know what this is? This is Jesus referencing the fact that sin is universal, that everyone has sinned. You may not have done such a bad sin, but understand that that contextualizing and that sort of categorizing of sin is a human endeavor. It's not a God endeavor. And, And it's true. I mean, how many of you... You know, we categorize, and there's some sense to it. I mean, murder, obviously, is worse than prayerlessness. Right? We get that. But the reality is, you have to understand, in God's eyes, sin is sin. Prayerlessness is as much a sin as murder. It's just sin. Uh, I can't stand it when people look down on people. When I meet someone who's looking down on people, I'm telling you, somebody wants to slap them up. I lose all my pastoral care, ask Brent to visit with him. <laughs> so I don't look down on people, but I look down on people who look down on people. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's just holier sin. It's just a, it's a better sin. You follow me? <laughs> but sin is sin from God's perspective. And, and, and the solution's always the same. It's Calvary. And even though it's true that, the, that it sort of is com- complex to work out what forgiveness looks like on a human level. I mean, obviously, if you've been prayerless, you need to repent and you need to come to God and recommit to prayerlessness, to be prayerful and, and have encouragement to that. But that's different than if you, like, stole something and you repent. You know, if you stole $50 from me, I will forgive you, but then I will say, where's my money? Right? Because you have to, there's more sometimes on the human end to dealing with the problems of sin. But Jesus is saying, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Which means, I don't care what you're disgusted at in the life of the other people. You need to understand that you're disgusting yourself. And that God's love for you is the basis of your love for others. And then jump down to verse 9, which is the heart of our text. This is John 8 and 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left and the woman still standing there. And when Jesus straightened up, he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go, he said, leave your life of sin. Owen Virgin says, go and sin no more. Now, let me deal with both of these just very, very briefly. Neither do I condemn you. It's the cry God will always say to you. 
God is never. See, people are more than what they do. People are more than what they do. And God made us to be somehow images of him. It is true that we often mar the image, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't always have hope to recapture the image that he imagined. In Psalm 103, the scripture says, As God the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on people who fear him. He knows how we're formed. He knows we're dust. He doesn't expect all that much out of us. He knows we're kind of just punks. But yet he believes in us and his engagement with us. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, God, you know me intimately. You know when I sit down. You know when I stand up. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. And then he says, yet you touch me. Put your hand on me. The idea is to bless me. That putting the hands on in the, in the Old Testament was always a sign of blessing. He said, I don't get it. If I were you, I would kill me. But yet you know me, and yet you put your hand on me. He says, if I try to run from you, when I go to the remotest part of the sea, fleeing from you, when I get there to the furthest away point, you're there. And if I look at my life and I say, it's all dark, I'm such in a dark place. I've never been in such a dark place. He says, even there, the darkness is as light to you. Luther called God the holy hound of heaven. He has got your scent. He's chasing you down. You are never beyond his reach. I don't care what kind of crud you're in. I don't care how dark your life is. God doesn't quit. Neither do I condemn you is the word that God gives to all humankind. See, part of the problem over history was that the church started seeing Jesus ascending into the Trinity and somehow we thought he was some kind of stern, heartless God. But in reality, he is the one that knows everything you feel. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says it this way. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like us his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people because he himself suffered when he was tempted so that he can come to the help of those who are being tempted. And then the last thing, Jesus says to this woman, go, and sin no more. Modern psychology says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin some more. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. I think what he's doing is declaring freedom over this woman. See, Jesus didn't just, this wasn't just this moralistic or prescriptive command where Jesus was saying, well, I know you've been adulterating, but doggone it, stop it for the love of God, stop. (laughs) I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. See, Jesus had an apocalyptic view of sin. In other words, he understood that sin was a power. He understood that sin wasn't just a choice. It is a choice. But he understood there's a drawing power, like a, like, a, like, a, like a gravitational pull of the sun, that temptation pulls on you. And that sometimes if your will is weak, you get sucked into sin and you're actually a slave of sin. And actually later in verse 34 of this very chapter, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins, it's not just a choice. 
There's some slavery involved. Sin is a force. Sin is a power. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Listen, Jesus Christ is declaring to this woman, hey, you're free. This isn't just about a choice. I'm declaring that you are free from the thing that itches in you that makes you run to this behavior. I'm setting you free. Now, I wish that that just meant instantaneous magical freedom. You know, that you just never even got bothered again because you just got yourself free. A little bit of magical from Jerusalem and a special offering <laughs> to my personal ministry that somehow you'd be free and free indeed. <laughs> Don't listen to those people. They are nuts. Those people are nutcases. They're going to spend, I'm telling you, a lot of those people that do that kind of stuff, they're going to go to hell for at least 15 minutes. They're going to hell. But you listen to them. They're lying to you. Because freedom in God is not just this instantaneous magic thing. Freedom in God is a process that he invites us into. We see it in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you. No temptation has seized you. What a great image. You ever been seized? You're drawn into it. You think, <gasps> you're being pulled into something. No temptation has seized you, except as common to people. Everybody gets seized. But God is faithful. Means he'll be there every time. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up against it. What he's saying is, you're going to get seized. You're not not going to get seized. You're going to get seized. But once you get seized, get in your mind. There's an escape. There's an escape somewhere nearby. That's what the psalmist said. When I'm in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table for me. See, in our minds, we think, if the enemy's present, there's no table. If the enemy's present, there is no God. No, if the enemy's present, you can take it to the bank. There's a table being prepared for you. God is right there. Why? He's trying to give you an escape. But you, it isn't just instantaneous. And sometimes taking the escape is painful. Aren't you excited? <laughs> in other words, sometimes getting out of sin means you have to suffer. Listen to this text. This will sell CDs. First Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude that you're going to suffer in your body because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. <laughs> Sometimes people get free. I, you know, we used to, back in the day when I was just Pentecostal and, uh, came out of that root, you know, which is really the root of Methodist holiness movement from the, from the 1800s. You know, you, you basically had a few things that were holy and a few things that were bad, right? And one of, the thing we, we, one of the things we held was that you can't smoke or chew or hang around folks who do. And so smoking was this biggie. I mean, no matter that you're pounding food down your gullet that kills you at 52, that's no big deal. But sm puff on a cigarette, and honey, if you smoke in the now, you're going to smoke in the hereafter. So, so there's... <laughs> so I, 
you know, a lot of my stories come out of that movement. And so, you know, you have cigarette smokers that are trying to get free from this deep, dark sin of cigarette smoking. And one of them was, uh, you would hear people talking about how they are smoking, how they felt convicted of the Lord and came forward to the altar and took their ciggy butts and they twist the pack and throw them on the altar and were forever free. I mean, there were stories like that. And so I knew people personally that would come to the altar repeatedly and twist the cigarettes and throw them on the altar and all they did was waste perfectly good cigarettes. Because <laughs> they go back out and buy another pack. Had to cut their tithe back just to keep up with their habit. <laughs> but see, I, I heard stories, other stories, not just the instance. We all love the instant stories. But then you hear stories like, uh, some of you know Joyce Meyer who's on TV who tells the story how she'd been smoking for 20 years and she felt in her heart she wanted to keep her body clean. And she prayed about it, Lord, I need to quit this smoking. You know what the Lord spoke to her? He said, I will give you grace to suffer for 30 days. Oh, we don't like those stories. <laughs> but sound like a devil story to us. Because we want, we, want, we want McDonald's set free thing. But the reality is, is that sometimes it is a process to work through, which means you have lots of failure along the way. Which is why 1 John 1, 9 is so wonderful that every time you fail, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Why? So once you get forgiven, you can stop and say, okay, I'm not guilty. I don't have to sit here in condemnation. But God, why am I an idiot? What's going on? What is your escape? See, sometimes you have to pray into your escapes. One more story, this lady that I know about in Colorado. She, she was an alcoholic, a Christian who was an alcoholic. A Christian alcoholic. Tell him I'll be done in a second, whoever that is. <laughs> Tried everything. 30-day things, counseling, AA. And every time she'd move in, she'd last for a few weeks and she'd fall off the wagon, giving up hope. Doing it for 18 years. And she finally began to pray into it and say, God, I, I, I give up. I've tried everything. I have no idea what to do. She prayed in there for a while, felt, worked through all the guilt lost her family, I mean, all kinds of trouble. A lot of times sin just flat, just kicks you, beats you up, leaves you for dead. But God always chases us. And she said that her story is that she, she woke up in the middle of the night somewhere in that process when she was in absolute desperation. Desperation has something to do with this. And she woke up in the middle of the night and she saw this dream where she was making, she had drawn this life size, human size, adult size rather, <coughs> rocking horse. You've all seen rocking horses for kids, but this was a rocking horse for adults. And she started, she got up and she started making these rocking horses. She drew it out and then she started manufacturing them. Sold them to counseling offices, churches, you know, just started selling them all these different places. That's how I ran into her is that she was selling these life-size rocking horses. But here's what she said. She said, ever since I started making those horses, my thirst for alcohol stopped. Somebody says, can I get that diagram? <laughs> here's the problem. God has an escape for you. Isn't always escaping others. There's nothing you're in that God does not have an escape for you. There's no dark place you're sitting in that God cannot get you out. There's never a time when there's no hope.
You just need to understand, he declares over you, you're free. It may take you a while to figure out how that works. It may take some community and some risk-taking. It may take some crying out to God. In the meantime, while you're in and out of trouble, just keep saying to God, God, thank you, you've forgiven my sin. I'm an idiot. Here's my sin. Give me wisdom. Help me find a way out. Because the good news about the story of Jesus Christ is there's always a way out. One final thought. How many of you think that if this woman that Jesus told Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What if three hours later, she showed up again, drugged by the Pharisees saying, this woman, just like this morning, has been busy this afternoon. (laughs) The scripture says stoner. What do you think Jesus would have said? Yeah, you better do it. She's a loser. You know what I think Jesus would have said? You that are without sin, cast the first stone. And then she would have looked at the woman and said, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And if she'd have shown up that evening, he'd have said the same thing. How do I know that? Because Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, they said, how many times should we forgive our brother? Seven times? Because that's a lot of times. And Jesus said, no, 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 not seven times. That's good news. Then he added 70 times seven. And in one gospel, he says a day, 490 times a day. That's a busy prostitute right there. (laughs) (coughs) Mm. Finish it up, okay. It's the drugs. I, it's the drugs. Yeah, get the man down quick. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. This Savior, he believes in us. You're not too far. Come. You're always accepted. Now, I'm going to leave now because I have a cold. I don't want to spread it, so... I usually like to hang and say hi to everybody, so let me just do it now. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Great to see you. What's been going on? Awesome. God bless you.